4. Barrel which in the end would fail to pass inspection, and also to safeguard against accident. The other explained, we do use a very heavy charge because our guns sell all over the world, and in some countries England, for instance the test is extremely severe, it's a costly process, as it spoils a lot of barrels, but it is better to lose material than to put out a piece of work which might not be trustworthy. Hamilton looked around the proof room carefully, certainly it seemed to have gone through the wars, from the thick wood huge gashes had been rent, and the entire interior was jagged and splintered. How much of a charge do you put to each barrel? He asked, and when the formula was given him for each of the different styles of rifle, the boy whistled in amazement. I should think that any barrels that stood that test could stand anything afterwards. He said admiringly. Well, they do. The other said, it's very seldom that you hear of a first-class gun exploding. I don't recall a case of one of ours for years and years, and even if by some chance flaw they did, the good ones, being nickel steel, would just make a hole in the barrel, not fly to pieces, but, as a matter of fact, any barrel that has been through that proof room will have been subjected to the greatest strain it will ever have to undergo, for there is no cartridge made that would have one half the power in proportion to the size of the barrel, from the proof room Hamilton's guide led him through different parts of the works, where various machines were employed in preparing and finishing the rough forgings he had seen made and annealed, thus, for example, in a receiver for a gun stock, one machine worked a bevel edge on it, another bored it to the size of the gun barrel, accurate to the thousandth part of an inch, another pierced the tiny screw holes, and yet other machines made even the minute screw gun, as was explained to Hamilton, so that the threads in each should fit with absolute exactness. But do you really mean to say, queried Hamilton in surprise, that every one of these fifty or more parts of each gun is inspected and tested. The official led him to a number of long rows of tables. Here, he said, are girls doing nothing else all day long. Here is a testing die for a part of the ejector of one of our 1911 models. You see that there are two spaces for all of them. It must fit into this one. It must not fit into that, which is a thousandth of an inch smaller. If too big, you see it won't fit into either. If too small, it would fit into the one where it ought not. Every tiny piece is gauged on all its sides and in every hole and at all points with this double gauge system. That doesn't leave much for guesswork, said Hamilton. But there is something that's been puzzling me. What is that? Asked his guide. I've always heard a lot about gun metal. Hamilton answered. And yet all the way through, these parts have been nothing but steel. And all the guns I ever saw had that bluish look, as gun metal has, for example. My watch is what they call gun metal, and he took it from his pocket and showed the back of it. Gun metal, said the other, is an alloy of copper and tin and once was used almost exclusively for cannon and big guns generally. But you're right about all guns having a bluish tinge, that is all steel. But it is treated by a process called coloring or bluing. I'll show you both the old way and the new. Going down the stairs and crossing the yard. He took Hamilton into a small building where there were a couple of open charcoal furnaces, in which the charcoal was intensely hot, but not hot enough to catch fire. The pieces of finished steel were buried in this charcoal, and every few minutes the men in charge would draw them out, wipe them over with a bunch of oiled waste, and thrust them back into the fire. It was about the dirtiest, blackest, grimiest work the boy had ever seen. That is the old way, Hamilton was told. 
and although it is handwork instead of machine work it is not a bit better in its results than the new way. The modern system, besides, is much simpler and cleaner. In the next building was a row of charcoal ovens, revolving in such a way that the parts to be blued were alternately covered and released from the superheated charcoal. The effect of the greasing also being done at every automatic revolution each furnace door bore an asbestos clock. What are those clocks for? Asked Hamilton. The same as those of Earth, I suppose, so that the man in charge can put in a number of certain parts of a gun and leave them in for a regular length of time at a certain heat, and pull them out all done, just that, was the reply. The only gain in the old style is that each part being handled separately. If there is ever so little difference in the metal, the bluer can give it a shorter or a longer time, whereas the machine treats all alike. Then when the gun is assembled, all the work is done, queried Hamilton, who was becoming a little tired from his long tramp through the works and among the furnace-heated shops. Mumber, said the other, that wouldn't do at all. A gun has not only got to shoot, but it has got to shoot straight. But how in the world, said Hamilton, can you tell whether a gun will shoot straight or not? One of the most important ways, said his informant, is to let an expert look through the barrel. One of our best men, for example, has done nothing else all his life. His father before him was a barrel cider and his son has just entered the works. He does it this way here. You try. And he handed a barrel to Hamilton. Rest the barrel in this crotch. He continued. And look at the window. You see there is a piece of ground glass with a thin black line running across it. Point the barrel so that it is aimed just below that line. And if you get it right, you will see a reflection of that line running lengthways up the barrel. Illustration. Making gun sights true. Marksmen firing new made rifles and adjusting the sights until every weapon carries perfectly. Courtesy of Winchester repeating arms company Hamilton put the barrel up and looked and looked. But for a minute or two he could not get the direction. Then he caught the line. But the reflection in the barrel was confusing. And it seemed to him that he saw several lines. It's awfully hard just to get that straight. The boy said. And it's dazzling. Too. That man you saw there answered his guide, as they moved away, can tell almost to the width of a thread of a spider's web if a barrel is straight, here, too, is another barrel test going on, you see this man is pushing a soft lead slug which fits the barrel snugly through the barrel by means of a brass rod, it takes a certain amount of pressure to push the lead slug through the barrel, such slight variations in diameter of the bore as one tenth of a thousandth can be readily detected, for if the barrel is smaller at any point than where it entered, the slug will stick, and if it is the least bit larger at any point, the slug will slide through too easily. Men accustomed to this class of work can readily detect an increase or decrease in diameter of one ten thousandth part of an inch. You certainly have it down fine, Mr. Nebet. Hamilton commented. We try to, responded his guide. Then when the barrel experts have had their turn, the gun is assembled and goes to the action men. Who are they? Asked the boy. They test the trigger pull, the cartridge ejection, the fall of the hammer, the filling of the magazine, and all such points. They have two sets of dummies, such as were used for testing the parts. One must fit, the other not. And so any fault in the mechanism is detected. The same with ejection. We must be sure that a cartridge will not stick. Then after that, still more tests. Didn't I tell you that we had to be sure that a gun could be made not only to shoot but to shoot straight? Our crack shots get the guns next. What do they do? Asked the boy. Fire at targets. 
yes, but first a man, encased in an armored barricade, shoots a few extra heavy cartridges in each rifle, in order to make sure that no weakness has been caused by the various processes through which all the parts have passed, then he turns it over to the crack shops, they fire half a dozen shots at a target, then look at the target through a telescope, those men know that they can hit the bullseye every time, so that if the shots are wide of the mark, either there is a defect in the gun or the sights are not true, in nine cases out of ten it is the fault of the sights, and they file them true, then really every gun has been fired before being sold, we turn out about 1600 guns a day, and each one has been fired several times, shotguns, too, the same standard of accuracy is needed in those, it is just as important that a shotgun should throw a certain percentage of its shot within a certain radius as it is that a rifle bullet should go straight, down in this little room, he continued, a man stands all day shooting down this gallery, 40 yards range, and each target is brought back and measured, in a circle with a 15 inch radius a boy counts the numbers of holes made in the paper by the tiny shot, there should be 300, if there are 290 the gun is passed, but if less it is rejected, sometimes you get very queer shot patterns without knowing why, do all shotguns throw as evenly as that, all good ones should, it is astonishing to see how regularly the scatter of a barrel will work out, every barrel, of course, is stamped with the number of shots it has put into the 15 inch circle, and you make cartridges, too, don't you, Hamilton asked, that's one of the largest branches of our business, his guide replied, but there's not very much in that to show you, except of course the making of the metal caps, and this is simply the punching of circular pieces of copper or brass, turning up the edges, or cupping them, as it is called, drawing them to length, inserting the primer pocket and heading the filling is done in a building perpetually closed to visitors, we think too much of our visitors, he added with a smile, to risk blowing them up, I don't suppose really, that there would be any danger, we have not had an accident for years, but it's a business in which accident is only prevented by extreme care, and we believe in being thorough, chatting pleasantly, Mr. Nebet showed Hamilton through the various general offices, the payroll department, and the drafting and designing room, and finally returned to the business manager's office, where they found the schedule awaiting him, filled out in almost every detail, a few spaces had been left blank until the boys returned, some trifling explanation being readily answered by him, illustration, a bullseye every time, the expert looking through telescope at target which he has fired at with new guns to test their accuracy, courtesy of Winchester repeating arms company, I must thank you ever so much, said the boy, turning to the director of the company who had taken so much trouble in showing him around, it has been one of the most interesting afternoons I have had in all my life, I feel quite as though I had been witnessing the equipping of the world's armies on the eve of a great war, that would be all right, said the business manager, if we were making military rifles, but 95% of our work is for sporting purposes, but how about your cartridges, there, perhaps, Mr. Nebet said, the Hague Tribunal would look askance at us, Hamilton had his portfolio under his arm, but at the door he turned, how many cartridges do you put out, he asked, six million a day, was the reply, chapter Ivy the boy leader of a crusade so long as Hamilton's work dealt with the larger manufactories of the district he encountered comparatively little trouble, 
as he knew enough of the desires of the Census Bureau to be able to help those businessmen whose books did not specifically divide receipts, expenses, and so forth in the same order as the government required. Indeed, he made several very pleasant acquaintanceships during the weeks in New Haven, and it was not until he was checking up, going to all the small places that had not been listed, that he really found himself in difficulties. He anticipated trouble with the dressmakers, and consequently his delight was great when he learned that this had been omitted from the census since 1904 because it is a neighborhood industry. But the milliners proved just as bad. In the first place, Hamilton could not work up any enthusiasm over a millinery establishment, and although he had definite instructions that each one was to be considered as a factory and entered upon the schedules as one, he thought such an idea was stretching the point a little far. Fortunately he had covered a large number of them during the first weeks of the work, visiting the places in the early morning and in the evening when the offices of the larger factories were closed. His worst clash occurred at almost the very last one to which he went. It was a little after five o'clock, just as it was beginning to get dark, that Hamilton, having ascertained from the business telephone directory the address of a milliner not down on his lists, who did work for wholesale as well as retail trade, went up the steps of a really handsome house, and rang the bell. He did so reluctantly, for there was no plate on the door, and he did not wish to annoy strangers. But the address seemed straight enough. The door was opened by a becapped maid, and Hamilton was shown into a handsomely furnished drawing room. On a table in the corner, the boy caught sight of a pile of fashion magazines, and he was sure that he was on the right track. After a few moments' delay, a richly dressed little French woman bustled in. She seemed surprised to see the boy, and halted on the threshold. Hamilton rose. I understand, madam, he said that you are an exclusive milliner, the woman looked bewildered, you make hats, Hamilton continued, perceiving at a glance that the woman was foreign born, is it a heifer that you want, she asked, number number, the boy replied, I just want to know if you are a milliner, the French woman, not at all enlightened by this explanation, answered, I do not make the hats, I design them, and the others make them, oh, I thought you were the proprietor, said Hamilton, then you don't own this place, I am the proprietor, but I do not own the house, she said, I pay the rent, but why you ask, I pay my rent, oh, of course, answered Hamilton, but that has nothing to do with it, I did not wish to trouble you that way, I come from the census, and wanted to make sure that this was the place I was looking for, what is that the census, that is the way the government finds out about all the people in the country, explained Hamilton, their names and how old they are, what they work at and how many people they employ, the wages they pay or are paid, and all sorts of things, the French woman's eyes had been getting bigger and rounder at every sentence, and when Hamilton had finished, she said with an air of regretful surprise, and they told me there was no police spy in America, there isn't, so far as I know, the boy answered, but you, I'm not a police spy, the boy said, a little nettled at being misunderstood. No, then that is all the more strange. In my country those are the questions the gendarmes ask. And if you are not policemen, why do you wear badge? She queried, pointing to the little census shield on Hamilton's coat. That has nothing to do with the police. The boy insisted. That's a census badge. Madam, he added, do I look like a policeman? The French woman, 
remembering the military appearance of the gendarmes of her native land and the burly makeup of the American policeman, shook her head. Perhaps you are disguised, she said, with a smile. Remember I'm not disguised, Hamilton responded, and the badge is just to show that I have the right to ask you these questions. I do not know anything at all about it, the milliner objected, but if you say you have the right, she shrugged her shoulders and sat down. Hamilton promptly picked up his portfolio, opened it on his knee, and began to put some of the queries required. He got along well enough while the formal questions about name, address, nature of work, and so forth were in hand, but the question about the number of hours worked during the year made the woman most indignant. What is the good of a question like that? She asked. What does it matter if the girls work all the night to finish the hat for the GR Rand occasion? The wedding, the garden party, when the work more, the get more pay, of course, said Hamilton diplomatically, with such a number of society people as you deal with that must happen very often, it was a successful move, the French women beamed on him, in the season, yes, perhaps twenty or thirty evenings, but even then the girl go home by twelve o'clock. Hamilton smiled to himself as he did a little figuring and filled up the schedule to show the prevailing practice followed in the establishment during the year. He was a little dubious about asking the questions concerning the wages paid, but he found no trouble. In your kind of work, he said, I suppose the girls get good wages, the very best, the woman answered, and Hamilton found that this was true. Indeed. So anxious was she to impress on him how much better were the wages paid by her than those in other establishments that the boy secured a large amount of unexpected valuable information. But he came to a dead stop on the question of raw material used during the year. For the material used in wholesale work the figures were easily secured. But the retail trade was another matter. This the milliner really could not give. For, as she pointed out, most of the few special customers she had, brought the materials to her to be made up, and she had no means of knowing what had been paid for them, nor would she even try to make an estimate, but I must know, said Hamilton, in despair, see for yourself, here it says that every factory must state the total cost of all material used during the year and the value of the products, factory, the milliner jumped to her feet, while you say a factory, the eyes establishment a factory, and me, one of the designers of the great Maison Chic in Paris. The eyes is insult. For a moment Hamilton was amazed at the tempest he had so suddenly evoked, then he tried to pacify the woman. That's just a general word, he said, and it is used for every place where things are made. Number number number, she cried. I know bizzers and that. A factory has chimney. High, high, and smoke, and nasty smells, and machines. I have seen them. That's one kind of factory, answered the boy, but it is only one kind, but if you like we won't use the word at all, this time, however, Hamilton's persuasions were of no avail, the milliner had taken offense at the word, factory, and not another word could the boy get out of her on any subject, the deadlock had become absolute when the door opened and the maid showed in a young girl, evidently a customer, the proprietress immediately greeted her invaluable French recounting as nearly as Hamilton could judge from her gestures her sorrows and trials at the boy's hands. As soon as there was a lull, Hamilton said to the newcomer, I beg your pardon, but since you seem to know French, would you mind explaining to madame what the census is? She seems to think I am a police spy.
or something. Oh, the census, the girl exclaimed. I could not make out what it was all about. I thought it must be some question of taxes. Mumber, Hamilton explained. It is the census of manufacturers, and millinery places have to be counted. I got along all right, and have finished my schedule but for one thing, and that I cannot get hold of. If you would just ask her the cost of the materials in the hats she made last year, I'll be through and then I won't be delaying you. But not even the girl's fluent French could bring any light on this subject, and laughingly she had to admit to the boy that her success had been no greater than his own. I'll tell you, said Hamilton, I've got an idea how we could get at it. How? asked the girl interestedly, for having taken a part in it. She was American enough to be unwilling to give up. What have you to suggest what is your plan? You are one of Madame's customers? Yes. And, of course, whatever kind of books are kept here, there must be some sort of ledger, so that your bills can go to you every month. The girl made a little grimace. The bills certainly come, she assured him. Well, then, said Hamilton triumphantly, if we can find out from Madame what proportion of all her trade your account island and if you can make a guess as to what the material you have brought her cost you, we shall come pretty close to being able to make an estimate on the cost of goods of all her customers. That's an excellent scheme, the girl said. I don't know that I can give very exact figures, but you want just a rough idea? I'd like it exact. Of course, the boy answered, but since that doesn't seem easy to get, the next best thing is a close estimate. With this device in mind, very few minutes elapsed before the required information was secured, a rough guess made at the result, and the schedule finally filled out. As Hamilton rose to go, the girl said laughingly, I think I should at least receive honorable mention in the dispatches as a census taker, the same as soldiers do in war. Very well, said Hamilton, smiling in return. I'll bear it in mind, and thanking her heartily. He went on his way, greatly relieved that the difficulty was over. In a piece of extra territory that Mr. Burns had assigned to the boy, there were several factories in which there had been some difficulty in securing properly filled schedules, partly because much of the work was done on the night shift. Because of this, Hamilton had got in touch with some of these factories. They were principally glass works on the night side first. He frequently found it necessary to work thus in the evenings especially after this added work, which was given him because the district proved too large for the agent having it in charge. Little by little he worked these down until but one remained, owned by Germans, where the boy experienced great difficulty in securing any sort of attention. The night superintendent, however, was ready to help, and Hamilton went to him constantly in the endeavor to have the schedule for that factory filled. This was the easier as the night superintendent in question had recently been promoted to that position from head bookkeeper. One night, waiting for the superintendent to work out these figures, he sauntered through the works. A phrase from Edwin Markham's The Whole Man in the Making kept ringing through his head. It ran as follows, It is in the glass factory perhaps, that the child is pushed most hopelessly under the blind hammer of greed and the boy wondered whether this especial works was one of those which the poet author had visited. Owing to the number of times Hamilton had been forced to go to this factory, two or three of the men had come to know him by sight, and they nodded now as he passed through, noticing a boy that looked even younger than himself, for unconsciously his eye was seeking that of which he was thinking. He turned to one of the men who had nodded to him, and said casually, and with an air of surprise, Why, 
that chap there doesn't look any older than me. I don't suppose he is so very old, the man replied. Sixteen, maybe. Seems a shame to have to start in so young. Hamilton went on, with an assumed air of carelessness. And I suppose he's been here some years, probably about four or five, was the reply. You know, continued Hamilton, in a conversational tone, I should think it would be hard for a boy to start in working like that, and at night especially. The man paused in his work an instant, and looked at the lad, passing his hand over his forehead as he did so. I was just ten years old when I began, he said. I'm only thirty now. I look fifty, don't I? You certainly look over thirty, Hamilton admitted. Oh, I look fifty all right. I know that, and I'm as nearly played out as a man of fifty, and it's all due to work when I was a youngster. Every year that a boy is put to hard physical work before he is sixteen is equal to five years taken off his life. I wonder that any employer does it, and that any state permits it, said Hamilton. There's not as much of it in Connecticut as in other states, although the figures show that it is growing here, was the reply. But you talk as though you had been having a session with the Crusader. The workman continued, Who's the Crusader? asked Hamilton. Haven't you seen him? Then, with your ideas, you ought to get along well together. And, he added, more seriously, the Crusader will be heard of yet. Why? He's a boy who started at work in this place when he was only seven years old. The workman answered, He's been here eight years now, and he's an odd genius. He taught himself to read and write, but he doesn't read anything except about labor conditions all over the world, and he knows all there is to know, I guess, about this business of children working. All the labor union people and the socialists know the crusader, young as the island and they send him, free. Nearly every book and paper that's published. Illustration, Young Boys from the Pit. A group of workers in a coal mine during dinner time. Many even younger work on the night shift. Courtesy of the Ridgeway Company. But why do you call him the Crusader? Asked Hamilton. Because he has some crusade idea on the brain. Thinks he can start a revolution or something that will put a stop to child labor. And he talks all the time of getting ready for this crusade as he calls it but everybody likes him just the same, and he's a good worker when he's not talking, which is he, asked Hamilton, I'd like to talk to him, if I might, no reason why you shouldn't, the other answered, he's kept busy of course, but there are minutes in which he can talk, and the crusader is given special favors, anyway, that's the boy, carrying an over there, Hamilton looked with interest at the boy thus pointed out, he would have been noticeable, even without the knowledge of his peculiar position, but with it, his difference from his fellows became most marked, Hamilton had a couple of large apples in his pocket, and he thought this might be a good opening, taking one of them out of his pocket, he started to eat it, and sauntered leisurely over to where the boy was working, he watched him for a minute or two, then, when the boy looked up, he said casually, have an apple, Almost wolfishly the work boy took the fruit from Hamilton and commenced to devour it. It was clear either that he was hungry or that such a luxury as an apple seldom fell to his lot. A few sentences passed, and then Hamilton asked, How long have you been in the factory here? Eight years, the crusader replied. You must have been just a youngster when you first came. Then, seven years old, was the answer, and small at that. It's a shame to let little children work like that. I think, said Hamilton, wondering whether this would have the effect of rousing the other, 
it must do them harm, but even though expecting some fiery retort, Hamilton was unprepared for the transformation in the lad, a moment before he had been a stooped childish figure with an old and weary face, carrying trays of hot glass from furnace to bench and bench to furnace, but at the word he turned, the air of weariness fell from him, his back straightened, life and passion flamed into his eyes, and despite the grime and sordidness of his surroundings, despite the rags in which he was clothed, under the dull glow of the furnaces and the flickering violet play of a distant arc light he seemed the bearer of some high message as his boyish treble, rich in the tones of a familiar despair, rang through the factory, the land is filled with the voice o' crying, he began, and no one seems to hear, tens o' thousands o' children cry themselves to sleep every night, knowing that the morning only brings another day o' misery, think of a little boy or girl o' ten years old, suffering already so much that hope is gone, and tired enough to die. There are 25,000 children less than 10 years old in the factories of America. Perhaps the people who could help don't know about it, suggested Hamilton. They know. The other continued, but they don't care. They stop their ears to the cry and oh the children and talk about America as the land of opportunity. It is the land of opportunity opportunity for the children to starve, opportunity to suffer, opportunity to die wretched and to be glad to die. There's no country in the world where children are tortured as they are in the factories of the United States. Oh, surely it can't be as bad as that, protested Hamilton. The objection only increased the crusaders' vehemence. There don't any children have to work anywhere as they do here. He fairly shouted, here where they rob the cradle for workers. Where the little voices become sad and bitter most as soon as they can lisp. Where the brightness of childhood fades out before its time and where its only world is the mill, the shop, and the factory, their tiny bones unset, they make them stand in one position all day long until you hear the children moaning hour after hour, moaning and no one hears, or hearing, cares, they send missionaries to China, cried the lad further, but there's no child labor there, they try to reform the unspeakable Turk but there's no atrocity upon the children there, they call the heathen lost. Though in the worst and wild tribes the children have a home in love and lovin'. If savage care, Russia cries shame on what goes on in our factories here. And even an Indian chief that they were to show in the sights of our great cities do. When asked what had surprised him most, answered, Little children workin'. You mean it is peculiar to America? That there is really more of it here than in Europe? Asked Hamilton incredulously. More? There's none there like there is here. And it's getting worse all the time. Worse this year than last year. Worse last year than ten years ago. Child labor, somebody says, has about it no halo of antiquity. It is a thing of yesterday. A sudden toadstool in the infernal garden. It is all our own. He laughed harshly. Let us be proud of it. How many children did you say? Asked Hamilton tersely, staggered and shocked by this statement of the facts of the case. Inu.